On today's episode, Marathon PB Tactics and Strategies with Brian Henley. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Get on with today's episode. I'm excited to bring you this one. Um, I know we talk about it a little bit in during the interview, but let me just say um, briefly here. So we're interviewing Brian, who I found out um, through Philip Hayes, the author or the the editor of the Science and Practice of Middle and Long Distance Running, the book we've been talking about for the last couple of months. And yeah, he put me on to Brian and said, um, "You'll love this because I actually read the chapter." Um, let me just see if I, I've got the book in front of me. Let me just actually get the chapter title right here it is so the title itself is called strategic and tactical decision making in middle and long distance running races and they talk about all different distances but we're going to focus on the half marathon and the full marathon and um yeah brian was great to have on brian is the senior lecturer in sports and exercise biomechanics at leeds university and we talk about everything to do with race strategy like training aside, um, what to do on race day, what is the best decision to do on race day in terms of pace strategy, in terms of tactics, and yeah, it was great to have him on. So let's dive in. Brian Hanley, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Not too bad. It's it's sunny here in, in Leeds for once. Yeah, well, I'm jealous because it's uh, middle of winter here. <laughs> um Let's start off with just uh, an introduction because I actually don't know a lot about you, so it'd be good for me to know as well. Um, let's start off with like uh, where you're from and how your career has sort of developed and where you find your your day to day at the moment. Yeah, I'm a senior lecturer in sport and exercise biomechanics at Leeds Beckett University, which is in the in the UK. Um, I'm originally from Ireland and I studied applied physiology there first after you know, after leaving school and then I, I traveled to Leeds 25 years ago um, to study a degree in sport and exercise science. Um, my main interest was in, in athletics and coaching even from early age so the reason I studied applied physiology and sports science was because I wanted to be a better coach and a better athlete. Um, from an academic point of view I then followed that up with a, another degree in psychology it was part-time while I was working, and I also have a PhD in biomechanics. Uh, the PhD uh, I did was on race walking. I was never a race walker, but race walking, um, which will be familiar to a lot of people in Australia because they've been very successful. We've worked with some of the Australian race walkers. Um, race walking has its rules, which means that it's more biomechanically interesting. So you, you can't really become an Olympic champion without being technically great in race walking, but you, you can in distance running to a certain mm. extent. Um, so from a day-to-day -day basis, I, I, I do a lot of uh, teaching, uh, research in terms of athletics, and uh, we do a lot of sports science support as well. So recently we've been testing the Leeds United team uh, for their pre-season. So they're, they're a big team here in England. Um, in terms of uh, pacing uh, and racing, I was interested in, in these from many years of, of competing as a what you might describe as a competitive club runner so i've done 71 minutes for a half marathon uh two just over two and a half hours for the marathon and <clears throat> i also did a lot of coaching um of, of mainly distance runners but when i was back home in ireland I actually mostly coached uh, sprinters and hurdlers and i think what i've learned from uh, my, my academic studies if you like in biomechanics physiology and psychology 
has helped me to understand the various aspects that are important in pacing because it's very multifactorial. Um, in terms of research, uh, I, I'll study anything that's that's athletics. So um, I'm currently doing doing one on, on the pole vault um, because uh, I was part of the I was the scientific lead for uh, two biomechanics research projects, one in London and one in Birmingham when the World Athletics had their championships there. So uh, I research everything in athletics, but my main focus is on, on distance running and, and race walking because uh, I come from an endurance background and I understand I understand the distance uh, races better. Yeah, and um, like just before we started recording, I looked up the you you on your profile on the research gate and saw that you had 125 publications, and so your accolades are very impressive. Um, and I, I guess the how I first heard about you was yes in um, Philip Hayes's book, which interviewed him a couple of weeks ago and found your subject, this topic, this chapter that you have around pacing strategies and sort of like mid-race tactics, um, very fascinating and something that I hadn't even considered as a topic on the podcast. And so when I find something that's quite unique and quite fresh, I, I thought I had to have you on. So um, reached out to Philip and he was more than happy to be like, yeah, you should get Brian on. He's really good, really knowledgeable. Um, so here we are today. On the topic, I think um, where I start, well, where I wanted to start was because most of the audience are just recreational runners, I can just imagine a lot of them trying to get a really good training in place, like try and get their, maybe they look up online, but really just set themselves up for a half marathon or a full marathon where they look a, up a, a schedule online, or maybe they have a running coach and they just follow that, you know, 12, 16 week running program but not really have a pace strategy in place. Once it actually gets to race day, they just think I'll just do really well in my training. And then just what happens on race day happens on race day. And that's probably where I'd find most people's mindset, I guess you could say. Um, so to follow that up with a question, how important is it to have a pace strategy when it comes to race day, rather than just relying on the training itself? Yeah, I think, um, Sometimes distance runners they they consider themselves different from every other sport. But you know you you wouldn't if you were a rugby team you wouldn't just practice your fitness and and some handling skills and then go into a game and, and hope for the best. You'd you'd have some sort of strategy planned. Or even if you're a, an actor on in theatre, you know on the stage, you don't just learn the lines. You've got to learn when you deliver the lines and, and how you deliver the lines. So a lot of runners what they do is they do the if you like the the basics. And then, but then never think about what I'm actually going to do in the race. Now, we, we say race, of course, as you say, a lot of your listeners will be recreational and therefore they're not trying to win the race or, or get maybe in the top 10% or something. They're, they're trying to finish in the best time they could or just even finish. Um, but it doesn't matter really what your aim is. The principles of planning for the race are the same. So I think the, 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 I mean, the, the number one risk, of course, is that if you don't have a plan, as to what time you want want to achieve or have, you know, what, what your intermediate, intermediate um, goals are, is that you you just run too fast at the beginning, you get carried away, you run too fast, and then you're just too tired at the end to get that personal best that you were aiming to do, or just even to finish. Sometimes people begin the marathon, especially so fast, relative to their ability, that they simply don't finish and they end up walking or whatever. Um, of course, uh, I mean I. I I used to race a lot here in Leeds and I'd see the same people every week or every few weeks. And I think, you know, it was just a social thing for them. They weren't that worried about what time they did. Um, so they, they, they ran for years without ever learning what they've done right or wrong because they wouldn't analyze it afterwards. They just turn up, they run and they're happy enough. And if they get happen to get a PB, well, that's great. But, um, so, uh, training for, for, pace management is really important for recreational runners because like I said you if you're not elite and you you haven't got the, that you those years of experience and, and training built in then you need to make sure you optimize what you have because um, it will be limited in terms of trying to finish the race in, in a good time mm. now the the rec as like I said recreational runners if their main aim is to finish the race or, or get a personal best for them um, they're unlikely to be worried about are they going to win the race now if you're trying to win the race like let's say we, we, we go to the other extreme which is the olympics or the world championships 
that's a different thing altogether. The way they race is they can easily do the distance, they can do it very fast, but they need to use special tactics to try to give them uh, the tiniest of advantages. So uh, we, d we did a study on the 2017 World Championships 10,000 meters and we were able to show how little bursts in the middle of the race burnt off certain athletes who didn't have the sprint finish then. But we're talking about just tiny amounts of seconds. Um, we're not talking about the recreation runners who are just trying to finish. So there's no need for uh, a lot of recreational athletes to worry about sprint finishes or or developing special tactics. It, it's just trying to get around uh, in the best possible speed. So um, what I would say, though, is that, uh, you know, you ask about, like, you do all the training in advance and then you do the race. And there's, there's, there can be a bit of a difference between the two in that I've heard someone, I can't remember who it was, I think they're from France, they said... Um, you shouldn't train for the event, you should train for the adaptation. What they meant was, when you tr plan your training program, you should train to develop your VO2 max, or your lactate threshold, or your even your, just your time on your feet, um, rather than worrying about how the race works out. But I think, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I see the point of, yes, you should train for the adaptation, but if you don't train for the actual way the event works out, then you, you've wasted your adaptations. There's no point in uh, having an amazing VO2 max if you kind of ruin it by running too fast in the first kilometer of, of the marathon or something like that. Um, this applies in, in some ways more to the tactical races of the of the Olympics that are on at the moment, um, but it does apply to, to if you like, uh, recreational runners as well. So yes, train to adapt your body to be better but then don't waste it by having poor tactics on the day. You have to have both, I think. Yeah, and that's, it makes a whole lot of sense. And um, going back to your chapter in the book, it does cover tactics like pacing strategies and tactics for different distances. And you're talking about yeah. like the the short to medium distances around the track, and then it sort of extends into the marathon kind yeah. of distances. Um, so there is a little bit of science around this and a little bit studied around pacing strategies for a marathon. Um, can you maybe just explain, um, where the science is settled in terms of the best pacing strategy for an individual who doesn't want to win, but I can, I can be safe to say that if someone's training for a marathon and they're a recreational athlete, they want to, if it's, if they've already done a couple, they kind of want to get a PB. They're kind of aiming for a PB. So um, where do we where do we land in terms of pacing strategies? Well, everything else being equal, um, there's no doubt that an even pace is the best strategy for distance running. So running, uh, if you want to do, uh, let's say, three hours for the marathon, then you want to go through halfway in an hour and a half. You want to do the first quarter in a quarter of that time in 45 minutes. It's it, there's no kind of doubt about this. Problem is sometimes what happens is you we look at elite runners and we see how they run and we go oh well they won the Olympics that must be the way to pace but it's not <laughs> it's it was the way they ran to try to win um, a, a good example actually is the um, sub two hour attempt by um, Kipchoge uh, when he he did in Monza first he tried in Monza and then he he did uh, did in Vienna and that was an even pace the whole way around now it's not a true world record because he had so much help if you like but he ran a completely even pace, apart from the end when he suddenly realized he was nearly finished and he, he speeded up. But the reality is that even if the world's best runner ever <laughs> needs to run an even pace, so do recreational runners. So, um, yeah, in, in, in the elite, they will sometimes use variable, pace, variable paces to disrupt their competitors. But for, definitely for recreational runners, the best aim is to run at a constant pace. Now... Like I said, everything else being equal. The, the problem, of course, is that uh, that's a, a flat course. So, you you know, going back to um, Kipchoge in Vienna, it was a completely flat course. They had the bend specially made for them. They had a car in front. They had pacemakers. That's when it's going to happen. So we, we have to re be realistic and, and know that no uh, normal person course is going to be absolutely flat and, 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 and uh, nice temperature and so on and... and pacemakers and so on so um, we have to think about equal effort not equal speed so if we know that in the first half of a race there are going to be lots of uphills and in the second half of the race is going to be more downhill then obviously we we will adjust our 
plan that we might be run the first half a little bit slower and the second half a little bit faster. Um, so it's not quite a constant pace, it's more like a constant effort. Hmm. Now the, the problem though is that, um, I think this might be something we, we, we mentioned in the chapter actually, is that uh, equal effort is not as easy as it might seem because we, we have this thing called um, rating of perceived exertion and it gets used a lot in labs. So anybody who runs in a laboratory for some running testing, they often um, will show you a sheet of paper that has numbers on it. A guy came, called Bork came up with it and you'll say 10 or something like that for medium intensity or 16 might be very hard so we have this uh, rating of perceived exertion in our heads and this is like a feedback source for us so when we are very tired towards the end of a marathon our rating of perceived exertion might be 18 something really really high but the thing about it is that it's perceived that's the p part of rpe it's perceived and our brains are not always great at this perception because uh, when we when we start a race um, at the very beginning, you can think that you're running effortlessly. It, it feels quite easy um, because uh, you know you, you're quite excited at the beginning. If you've trained for a marathon, then doing the first kilometers is quite easy. So your perception of how hard you're running at the beginning might be uh, false, as in your perception is that the running is easy, but physiologically in terms of how much fuel you're using or what percentage you're running of VO2 max or how much lactate has been produced might be, they might be, they might be wrong. There might be a, if you like, a misreading by your brain of what's happening physiologically. So your rating of perceived exertion is low. You think it's easy, but actually you're doing damage to yourself because you're, go, you're physiologically working a lot harder than you think you are. Um, now, Sometimes people do know this. They know that they, they, they're not able enough to keep up with other people, but they keep up with them anyway. And uh, one reason given for this is what we call positive affect, which just means positive feelings and emotions. If you let people get too far ahead of you, it can be quite demoralizing. So what people do is they keep it up with others. It makes them feel better that they're with a group and that they might have a chance of, of doing a good time. Um, but I think that's backfires in the end because when you get tired you drop off and that becomes even more demoralizing than if you let them go in the first place i think a better strategy psychologically is to start off slowly um be disciplined in knowing that don't worry they're going to come back to me and gain from when you start passing them out towards the end so there's nothing better than in the last half of, say, a half marathon or a marathon that you're passing people out. In fact, in any race, that you're passing people out gives you a real boost. You feel like you're going a lot faster than you actually are, and it really encourages you to finish. The opposite of that is when people are passing you out, and that's no fun at all. Uh, there was a good example, actually. It's not in running. It was in the 20-kilometer race walk in 2012. I had a friend who was competing she told me after like two kilometers she looked behind and she couldn't really see anybody and actually i checked the results uh, yesterday in all the splits and she was in the 50 something out of 60 after two kilometers um but she ended up 18th and she was able to be disciplined enough to go okay i'm not going to go off with this really fast pace at the beginning and then have that big boost that's the big psychological boost of passing people out at the end and that is more about positive emotions and so on so um, there's a lot to be said for being disciplined at the beginning of a race to gain the benefits physiologically and psychologically towards the end. So th in terms of the tested pacing strategy, if you start off at your even pace, you you will be behind other people who end up at the same time but or, or about the same ability, but you will pass them out just by keeping that even pace the whole way through. Okay. Um, so our... Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Our overall goal should be, especially if it's flat and especially if conditions are, are desirable, to have that even pace. Um, but even if you're honed in a little bit more, which I think is extremely hard to do, is to be that equal effort between that first half and that second yeah. half and having that equal effort. Um, 
but then you're talking about a lot of psychological um, factors, emotional factors, as well as the physical factors of fatigue and energy and just emotional state, depending on what happens in the race that would manipulate that perceived effort. So um, it sounds, it, it can get complicated, but I think when it comes to having that even pace and trying to really have those even splits throughout the whole race, um, has that been shown to be superior compared to someone who does take their time at the start and is, um, who says, Oh, let me just take the first half or the first like third, really conservative. Then I'll reassess later on. If I'm feeling really good, then I'm sprinting to the finish. Um, that sort of strategy has that been not as favorable? Um, it's a good question. You can gain from going a little bit slower at the beginning. Um, sometimes the, the the reality is you you end up losing so much time that you just can't gain it back again uh, a good example is the hills now you think about a cyclist who goes up a hill it's a lot of work but when they get to the top they can actually freewheel the whole way down and get to the bottom without even doing any energy but a runner can't do that so they say it's a roughly um you only gain back about half of what you lose in running in other words if you lose um half a minute running up a certain hill then when you run back down that hill you gain back 15 seconds you can't gain back everything you lost because that because because of the way the feet land in front of the body and you, and you break on every step so uh it's sort of similar with this in that if you go too easy at the beginning and then you're going to try to how, how many minutes can you realistically make up at the end you, you have to be very very fast and people are, are not that fast sometimes uh if you're talking about recreational runners they can't suddenly put in to six meters per they can't suddenly do 20 kilometers an hour uh, in the last few kilometers it's they're, they're not physically capable of doing that so it depends on what we how we how much we mean by going easy and I think people might over overcorrect that. I, I think if they say, let me go slow at the start, they go too slow. Um, cause I'm just thinking of my own pace and what I would perceive that'd be like a, you know, five minute 45 pace. And that means that like, I'm about 45 seconds off, like a comfortable pace for me, but then I'm losing 45 seconds every single kilometer. And maybe that's too slow because there's no way I'd gain that sort of, um, yeah. gain that back like later down in the race because yeah it's um they'd accumulate very quickly yeah i mean some people do do a negative split as in they run the second half of a race faster than the other but it's not necessarily because they ran the first half really slow it's just because they by going even paced to halfway then start and pass people out it helped them psychologically um what was interesting from some uh, research I did on half marathon, you know, the elite half marathon runners, if you like, was that they would all deliberately slow to the same amount as their rivals in that sort of 15 to 20 kilometer part so that they could all do the sprint finish. Um, so, yeah, people often do do a, a negative split, but it's not by minutes. It, it might be by 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 one minute or half a minute. It's very rare, actually, in a marathon to do a, a negative split simply because people run out of fuel. But I would... Yeah, I wouldn't deviate too far from the even split thing. Of course, it could be as well um, that somebody tries for an even split and actually they, you know, in the last couple of kilometers, they do speed up a bit because um, they, they've they been so conservative beforehand that it, it, it's physiolog they physiologically are better than they would have been. Um, but I would still aim for a certain time and start on that pace and try to maintain it for as long as possible and then get that big psychological boost of knowing that the finish is near. I wouldn't deliberately go too slow at the beginning. It just doesn't, it, you can't make it up. You can't make up the time. I like how you're factoring in the psychological, the psychological effects later in the race. Like if people are passing you or if you're passing people or that, yeah. that getting close to the finish line. And then all of a sudden you just get this boost of energy because it's within your limits. We have so much evidence now that um, once you get within 10% of the finish line, you get such a massive boost. I've seen it in 50 kilometer race walkers, the longest race in the Olympics. They're absolutely dying. And then suddenly with five kilometers to go, they speed up again because they know the end is near. Knowing the end is near is a massive, massive boost. Knowing that you're going to make it mm. is a big boost. Yeah. And so I guess the next progression of this is actually determining 
the race pace because someone would have gone through training. Um, potentially someone who hasn't done a marathon before might think, okay, well, what's my time I should aim for? Or if I have done a couple before and I want to get a PB, um, what's my desirable, um, goal? Because if they want a four hour marathon, then they, they need to know that completion time before they evenly work out what their even pace should be per kilometer or per mile. Um, and so do you have any guidance around determining what pace that should be set at? Yeah, the marathon is different from all of the other races. Um, so we'll come back to that one, I think, because it's, it's so different. But if you, you know, the, ultimately experience is the key because the more you run, uh, the more training you do, but the more years of training you do, and the more races you do, the more likely you are to get the pace right. It's really difficult for a first timer, no matter how, how good they are. So even uh, elite track runners who've gone to run the marathon can get it spectacularly wrong um, because they just don't judge the marathon marathon properly. So you do need to do a certain number of uh, hard training sessions that are close to, or if they're shorter distances, faster than what you're, you're aiming to do, just so you get used to the idea of what a speed feels like um if you can't run let's say 10 kilometers in 40 minutes in training you're not going to be 35 minutes in a race but many runners actually start at that pace they do the first kilometer in three and a half minutes and then they end up doing about 41 or 42 so and they've been better off starting at four minutes per kilometer um now uh, i used to train for uh, marathon pace on the track because i knew the distances and um I'd build it up that, you know, I'd start off with 300s at race pace, which felt very, really easy. And then you, you, I went up to 600 at race pace, eight, 900s at race pace. And I would end up with something like 10 times 1200 at race pace with 200 meters in between, which is a really, really hard session. But you're, you're just learning what does the pace feel like. Um, incidentally, I was doing that training session one day and Kelly Holmes, who won two gold medals in the Olympics in 2004, she appeared on the track, the same track, and uh, her training was one 400 metres as fast as possible and one 600 metres as fast as possible, and that was her whole training session. Wow. So what you're training, yeah, that's all she did. <laughs> and then when I told her what I was doing, she was like, wow, that's, I could never do that. <laughs> well, it's not really that fast, but it's a lot, you know, so you've got to get used to the the distance for the, the speed, and you've got to restrain yourself as well that's why i did it on the track because i knew i need to do every 300 in whatever uh, you know in in a minute and that was the right pace so um now the good thing about uh, using races for training is that they 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 reduce the psychological load so i'm going to talk i know i'm talking a lot about psychology but this is not like people have to worry about the psychology this is kind of what happens in your brain without you realizing you reduce the psychological load a lot by running in races for training because they will have accurate distances. So you're not worried about, is my GPS giving me the right distance? You know it's going to be 10 kilometers or half a marathon. You have markers on the side of the road, usually telling you how far you've gone. So you can check your watch to see, are you on pace? Um, the course is probably traffic free. So when you go running training on the roads and there's lots of traffic, you can get, it can make you nervous and that puts you off but usually races are traffic free so you don't have to worry am i going to get knocked down and refreshments might be provided during the race so they might have water or something so you don't have to worry about carrying water so by using shorter races as training and sticking to your planned pace for the marathon or the half marathon or whatever it's going to be that can really help you um, develop the skill you need and there's two skills you're developing one is um just you know running at a certain pace but the other one is being disciplined and that it's not a race i'm in a training run um so you can't race training you you have to know it's training and i'm going to do this but i'm using the race situation to get me ready for the race and to prepare my mind and to make it like i say psychologically easier than i'm not worried about traffic and distances um now like i said the most difficult race to prepare for is the marathon because it's not like it's too half marathons uh it's not like doing a 32 kilometer run and then an extra 10 kilometers on the end it's a totally different thing the, the fuel problem in marathon is so big that it's so it's not like preparing for any other any other distance 
Um, for good runners, an often equation we'll use is we get half best half marathon time near the marathon, double it, and then add on 10 minutes. But that probably is a bit, um, you know, you probably would have to add on more for, for recreational runners. Um, but the problem is, of course, that the, the fatigue you get in the last 10 kilometers of a marathon means this doesn't always really work. And ultimately, you need to do a lot of runs that are longer than 30 kilometers, no matter what speed they are, to get used to being on your feet for that long and to f- know what it f- feels like. In the actual marathon, you talked about going slower. Yeah, I would err on the side of caution. Definitely don't go faster than personal best pace in the first half. Uh, you can always make up a little bit at the end. Um, if you start off, you know, if you start off a little bit conservative, like we say, conservatively, you, you probably will, f- it doesn't have to be massively conservatively, just a little bit below your pace or um, exactly at your pace. You, your target end pace should be fine um but it's it is really difficult for the marathon it's the most difficult one to pace properly yeah and like i say sometimes it's the the battle of attrition that you why you need to add on so many more minutes from the half marathon you can't Mm -hmm. just double the half marathon because you're you're facing the the conditions of attrition as well um but i want to throw a few factors at you because we talk about even pace we talk about even effort is desirable if everything's remaining consistent um you did mention sometimes the course isn't always flat um but in the chapter they also talk about weather and especially for a marathon because marathons usually start morning um and it just gets warmer as the day goes on and if you're expecting like a four or five hour marathon it's going to be significantly warmer than it is at the start of the race so how do we factor that in as well yeah the best conditions are where it's cool so sort of between five and ten degrees celsius you've got no wind you've got no precipitation and you've got cloud cover so there's no sunshine but the chances of getting that are really low um all of those things to happen normally something will not work out i remember running a 20 mile race in the snow and the snow just stings your eyes if nothing else so that's the best but we, we we rarely get that. Um, I think Kipchoge for a sub two hour managed to get everything because the, it was not planned for for a certain place at a certain time. Um, so the more we work, we move from being cool and we, no wind and, and no rain and so on, the worse it's going to be. And you, you, we have to take this into into account. So if it gets hot, we have to consider pre race cooling. Um, now the the more elite athletes will have ice vests and all these kind of things, but even if you like uh, uh, recreational runners, uh, what I used to do was um, get my singlet and uh, you know my running vest and uh, put it in water so that when when you even even if it was a relatively cool day, the vest is already cool and, and cooling you down. Um, and making sure to get enough uh, water on our bodies. Now, it takes. I think a big mistake people make is that they they spend too much time drinking water rather than uh, cooling their bodies. What I mean is, when you when you if you just drink the water, it takes so long for the water to get into your body, to go around your system and then come out as sweat, that you know you you're getting hotter and hotter all that time. Whereas the best thing would have been just to pour water on your over your head, and over your body. And this is why they have sponges as well, because rather than waiting for the water to come back out as sweat, you just pour it over your head and and that cools you down. And I think a lot of people underestimate sweat. It's the number one way of cooling down because the conversion of uh, the water into steam, if you like, takes heat from your body. If you can speed up that process by just getting the water over your body rather than going into your mouth, then that does help. Um, Of course, you might want to drink some as well, but if you're relying on drinking water to keep you cool, it's not going to work. And I know in Australia, you have a lot hotter conditions Mm -hmm. than we do when it's your summer. now, if it's if it's something like it's windy, yeah, running behind others can help. Um, but sometimes uh, athletes deliberately don't run behind other people because they actually want that wind to help cool them down. Light rain can help if it's going to get too hot. But if it rain, if it really rains, it's going to slow you down. So um, sunlight, if it's particularly sunny, um, you get that radiant heat. So it's it's better to run if you can in the shade. And sometimes the problem with doing these things is they add a little bit of distance on. So if you expect to run, uh, uh, let's say, ten thousand meters for the for the for the ten k race, you maybe will run maybe up to hundred meters or more than that 
by having to deviate for shade and hiding behind other people if it's sunny and uh, if it's windy so people need to mentally adjust their planned finishing time when they see the weather conditions because otherwise they're going to be disappointed i think because race conditions are rarely ideal um uh and, and i think heat is the can be the biggest problem especially for recreational runners like you say if you're taking four or five hours to do the marathon even if it doesn't get that much hotter you are going to get a lot hotter and I definitely think that the water over your head um, that, that I used to use all the time is, is something that people need to think about because drinking it is just not going to help. Yeah. You. I'm already thinking of a couple of scenarios to say, like, I'm picturing myself running a marathon and then, because it's usually like in one direction, it's usually like in some sort of loop or doing like laps of something and just picturing like, if it is a bit windy, there will be moments where you do have a straight on headwind, but then you turn around and mm. it's on your side or on your back. So focusing, if there is a headwind, that's when I need to f find someone to, to run behind. And then, um, throughout facing all other directions and it'd be, you know, ideal, well, not as ideal to hide behind someone, but <clears throat> then, like you said, if there, if it's quite sunny and there's like shade on the other side of the path or on the other side of the road, maybe yeah. it's worth, um, making sure you don't deviate too much, but maybe it's worth running in the shade. Um, going back to the, the water over the head thing makes a whole lot of sense. And me watching the triathlon on the weekend, um, they take, I saw them take a little bit of water and then just dunk the rest over their head. Um, from a cooling perspective, that makes a whole ton of sense, but down the end, of, like towards the end of the race, especially for a marathon or an ultra or something, um, do we run a risk of like dehydration because heat wise, it's cooling us down, but we might pass out at the end of the race if we're not taking in too much water. Or is that, I have also found there's evidence that like dehydration isn't really that common in marathons. But so what do you have to say about that? Uh, well, you see, if you, it, it, it depends on which, which what, what the marathon sit, um, setup is. If you think, I mean, actually quite a few of those um, British athletes who won the gold medals, they're my students. Um, often those kind of races will will they'll have the opportunity of energy drinks and what the athletes will do is they'll they'll focus on um being hydrated if you like using the energy drinks rather than using the water um so they that's that's slightly different if you look at the elite marathon let's say it's uh, the london marathon or new york or something the elite athletes will have their special drinks and they will drink them and then they, the water they won't drink that as much they pour it over their heads and over their bodies and keep cool so they're getting they're, they're using the energy drinks that's part of their hydration which is why they don't become dehydrated towards the end if you're if you're a, when i did the london marathon I, you know i didn't wasn't get my special drinks so we were getting a special sports drink that sponsored the, the event and i made sure when i was training for the you know when i was doing 22 mile runs for a 26 mile race i put the um this i bought that specific drink and i put it by the side of the road and i would do loops around and i drank it at the same time as i would get it in the race because i knew where i would get it in the race um and i didn't have you know loads of water to drink because you know you're not going to get that you're going to remember as well people entering a marathon for the first time suddenly there might be a, a water station every kilometer um, or every few kilometers and suddenly they're drinking loads of water that they didn't drink when they were in training and you know you can become bloated and actually sick from drinking too much so i'm not saying don't drink water because yes you can become dehydrated but you've got to factor in the the weather conditions um i see a lot of people drinking loads of water for for, for quite short races and it's like why are you drinking that it's it's not really going to benefit you the race is too short for benefiting so in a marathon hot conditions yes of course you should drink some because you will lose weight from sweating um but just don't overdo it i think is the main is the main thing or don't rely on that to cool you down it's, it's a different it's a different kind of thing is what i'm trying to get across yeah just make sure you don't mix up your drinks and um have an energy drink <laughs> yeah. over your head exactly, yeah. <laughs> um okay so other conditions or other factors that we want to um, consider. They mentioned in the book also, or you mentioned in your chapter about following a pacer. And uh, you did mention yeah. the psychological uh, load, uh, making sure our psychological yeah. load isn't too much as well. Um, perhaps we talk about a pacer, why a pacer is so important, and then maybe um, hone in a little bit more, highlight the 
that psychological load and why that's so important? Yeah, so um, pacemakers, you know, they can help with shielding from the wind. But uh, we, we talked about wind a bit earlier. Uh, the reality is that unless you the, the, the wind is really, really strong or you can get really close to the person in front of you, you don't get that much of a benefit, actually. Um, like we said, the, the real benefit of pacemakers is that they take the cognitive load. And what we mean is they have they have to do the thinking. Um, but the problem with pacemakers is that like we, because they have to do the thinking, this makes it hard. It's it's not easy to get a, a pacemaker, even in the elite races, who actually runs the right speed. Often they go way too fast or way too slow. Um, and this is why they brought in the wave light technology. I don't know if you've seen that. It's where the, they have green lights and the the athlete follows the green light. And if they do that, then they're running at the right pace. Once again, showing just how important it is to have an even pace. Um, or in the um, sub two hour marathon attempt, they had a, a car going at the right speed. Um, you know, the, the, the you know, I don't know if you remember the 2003 world record, uh, it's now been eclipsed, but Paula Radcliffe ran a world record in, in London in 2003, and she had two male pacemakers with her the whole race. Now, she said afterwards, but I, you know, I wasn't behind them, I was running against them, I was racing them, but she, she was trying to say that she didn't get any benefit from the wind because she was beside them, but she could have got an enormous psychological benefit because those two men, those who were much you know, capable of much faster times, they were doing all the thinking. She just had to follow them. And what we have is that, back to psychology, what people do is they follow a principle of adopting the least psychologically taxing strategy. What this means is you do, you're going to do whatever causes you the, less, the least brain pain, whatever causes you to think the less. That's what you're going to do. And this is not just in running. This is in everything. Um, it's like uh, following the path of least resistance. So a good example would be um, a lot of athletes, they don't really want to think about how they're going to race. They want the coach to tell them, you're going to do the first lap this speed, you're going to do the next lap that speed, and they go, okay, well, that's what I'll do. It's, because it, it's not because the athlete is stupid or can't do it for themselves. It's just that when you're running, you don't want to have to think very much because it uses up energy and you're better off just, just focusing. And this is what the pacemakers do. Um, now, like I said, sometimes the planned pacemakers get the, the, the pace wrong or the others just don't follow them. So the men's Olympic 10,000 meter race, the, Ken the Ugandan went off in the front. He was expecting the other two Ugandans to follow him. They probably should give him the final result, um, but they, they got it wrong. If you're going to follow, if you've got a recreational runner and they're, you know, you're following somebody else and you might not even know them, you know, you're going to make sure the person you're following is, is someone you trust that they're running at the right speed. Um, just to go back to, to race walking. Uh, I know a lot of people won't be race walkers, but it is a good example because it's distance event as well. But there's a uh, an athlete competing in his eighth Olympics over 50 kilometers. His name is Jesus Angel Garcia from Spain. And I know athletes who will follow him for more or less the whole race because it's his eighth Olympics. He's done in so many world championships. He's got world championship gold. He's had a world championship. He's just just like a metronome. And other people will follow him because they trust him. They might not even know him. They just know this guy is somebody who knows how to pace. So just running alongside another runner isn't always going to achieve a fast time because, um, like I said, if you if you don't know that person or you don't know them very well, um, they just happen to be running at the speed that you want them to run. You don't know whether they're going to get tired or they're going to speed up. And my research on half marathon running showed that athletes, they often get locked into personal battles, even near the battle, the, the back of the field, and they don't run their best. They end up focusing too much on, oh, I'm going to beat the guy in yellow I've been running with for, for you know 30 kilometers. That's my aim now. And they forget about the overall goal. So um, pacemakers can reduce the load, but if you like unintentional or just coincidental pacemakers sometimes can mess things up. Mm. And I guess, why are we trying to reduce the cognitive load? Have you found that if someone like in a scenario, if someone goes out unwilling of what pace or they're constantly focusing on their pace per kilometer, they're constantly thinking, should I, um, am I going too fast? Am I going too slow? Should I have some water here? Have I had too much water? And they're constantly building on that psychological load. Has that let, would that lead to like a negative um, sensation or like a, would it affect your RPE? Would it affect fatigue moving forward? Like what are the, why are we trying to make this um, as easy as possible? 
Yeah, I think um, you, you can overthink it. <laughs> I know I've said all these things, but you can overthink it. Uh, I used to coach a, a female athlete who was, who was actually quite good. And uh, sometimes if I was doing a, a not a race, but like a, a race as a training run, she would run behind, you know, she would pace off me. And um, she, one of the things she did was she, she never wanted to know what the time was. She wanted me to worry about the time. And even when we'd run past people and they would shout her number, she tried to block it out. She didn't. She never wanted to know whether she was behind schedule or ahead of schedule. She just wanted to be able to follow somebody. So my job was knowing the time and knowing we were doing the right speed. And actually, I used to know she was slightly better than she thought. So if she was aiming for, let's say, 85 minutes for the half marathon, I knew she was able to do 82 or sub that. And we did that in, in a race actually in Nottingham where um, I knew we were ahead of the splits every time. But I knew she was going to be okay, but she didn't know anything. She didn't know anything in terms of picking up the, the water stations. I was picking up the, I was taking the time to go over, pick up the water, and give it to her. And you know, that's just an, ex, an extreme example, if you like, of reducing cognitive load. <laughs> she wasn't thinking about anything apart from following me. And that's what the elite athletes are doing as well. Um, they're not thinking about am I doing the right speed? I'm just following that guy there because that guy is paid to run at that certain speed. Mm. That's not going to work for the recreational runners. Um, I think you know you can, if it's a last, uh, sorry, a large city marathon where there's loads of people in, you can start quite slowly, just because there's so, so many big crowds and people can kind of panic a bit, then go, oh, I, I'm I'm way behind schedule, I've got to speed up, and you don't because what will happen eventually is the crowd dissipates and you you get back quickly to your to your your planned speed. So. Um, yeah, I think you can overthink it. I think in some ways there there are too many gadgets. Um, personally, I I when I ran the marathon and I didn't have any, I didn't have a watch on me at all. I would use it in training, but not in in racing. Or if I'm pacing somebody, I would use it, but never in a race, because I like to just go with what what was happening, um, but be restrained. Um, so I think that if you have a heart rate monitor and a GPS and all these things, I think you can stress a bit out a bit and. GPS people seem to stress out a lot because what will happen is that the, the system will tell them they've done a certain distance and the marker on the side of the road will tell them a different distance and they start to get nervous about it and why is it different and, and you know you just just worrying about things you don't need to worry about so I would I would actually you can a stopwatch is the most I think people should should have um, when they're competing in a race I don't think you need anything more than that it, it adds to the worry if, if you if you know what I mean yeah it, it adds to the amount of information going yeah on. and now that we know the, uh, the positive impacts of trying to keep things trying to keep a pace uh, equal or level um, it you did mention in the book as well that females have been found to keep uh, an even pace an even split uh, more consistent than males can but didn't actually explain why that's the case um do we know why females are, are better at maintaining an even pace yeah so this is true yes we, we a good example is my i know it's not recreational runners but my research on elite marathon runners showed that women had more even pacing they were more likely to have negative splits as in they they were more likely to speed up in the second half and they were less likely to drop out there was much less much lower numbers of them were dropping out now there's different theories for this some of them are psychological and some are physiological. So the psychological ones um, mainly revolve around that women are more cautious at the beginning. They're less likely to take risks. Um, and because they start slower, they're less likely to run out of fuel, they're less likely, therefore, to drop out, and they're, they're more likely to run this negative split. So um, that's the sort of psychological thing, about, mostly about risk-taking. The physiological ones are that uh, women have a greater proportion of type 1 muscle fibres, and these are the aerobic ones. These are the long-distance running ones. And it's actually not that unusual now to find in ultra-distance running that women are beating men. So they're, they're, these are the two, two theories. I think also if you look at big city marathons... Um, you know, women can benefit from men being in the race with them because uh, there's somebody to pace themselves off. Once again, go back to Paula Radcliffe. She 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 couldn't get two women to run with her the whole way for the for that world record attempt because she was the fastest woman, so she needed two men to run with. Um, now we did a a survey for one of our studies on risk taking um, marathon runners. Uh, we had about four thousand responses, and what we found was that actually the women said they were as 
likely to take risks as the men, but the the, the evidence from the races doesn't show that. Um, a good example is the 27, 2017 London Marathon that I actually analysed biomechanically, and it showed the women started off really, really slow in that one, and the men started off really, really fast. And actually by the end, in the last sort of part of the race, the women, the top women were nearly as fast as the top men. Um, so what's happening, I, I think the women are getting the pacing right and the men are getting it really badly wrong. Uh, there's no worse pacers than the men at the start of a marathon. They go off way, way too fast relative to their ability. And um, often I think this gets missed, missed because you, if you watch the Olympic marathon or something like that, they all look really fresh at the beginning in the first five, ten kilometers. They'll look great. And it looks like what's happening is that the, the guys at the front, they're just getting faster and faster and dropping the other ones behind. That's not what's happening. They're all getting slower. All the men are getting slower. It's just that some of them are getting slower quicker than, than others. Whereas the women often speed up towards the end. And it's because they've conserved the energy. And I, so I don't know if it's a risk-taking thing or they're more cautious or they're just more sensible. But definitely, yeah, women are, are better pacers than men. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the topic around um, the central governor theory, how we have this internal perception, this internal pace that we create for ourselves based on effort and based on how we think we will survive throughout the race. And I have done episodes on this in the past around effort and how we perceive effort and because you're so you, you talk about the even balance between like the physical side of things the physical demand and then the psychological demands um keeping that in mind and keeping like a pacing strategy and still on the on the same topic of tactics um are there any other ways or any other strategies that we can employ knowing that it is quite psychologically driven and effort is pretty much like a brain perception. Um, how can we take advantage of this? Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned the central governing theory, which has been dropped to a certain extent by, by, by some researchers and pacing recently. Um, the problem is the brain can be really poor at judging how fast to run in the early stages of a race because the feedback it's receiving from the environment is not indicative of what's going to happen later. So, for example, in the first few kilometers of a marathon, you know, the athlete will feel fresh, they're excited to be in the race, and the brain just doesn't think, you know what, in 40 kilometers time, I'm going to be really, really tired, so I should slow down. It just doesn't work like that. So you kind of have to, if you like, tell your, tell your brain, it's the wrong way of putting it, but, you know, you, you have to think, hang on, I've got to remember, I'm going to be really struggling at, in the last 10 kilometers of this marathon, because... I know the realities are that I'm going to run out of fuel. So you kind of have to control yourself and ignore your perception. So um, when I used to run, I used to have a, a way of thinking that was, if you if you think you're too fast at the beginning, you're definitely too fast. If you think you're doing the right pace, you're probably still going too fast. And even if you feel like you're going too slowly, you're probably still going too fast because it feels so easy at the beginning. You just don't realize how fast you're going. And actually in the labs, I remember the race walkers, we'd have them walking over say 50 meters to do some lab tests and they would set off and we'd say, you went way too fast. And they'd say, no, no, that's my normal speed. And said, no, 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 that was world record pace. You know, we knew that. <laughs> they couldn't judge it at all. People just cannot judge um, when they're fresh, how fast they're going. So, um, you know, in a race, you're running with other athletes. This can be a huge, a huge advantage. Running with other people is a big advantage because they can help you to 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 uh, do better. You know, because running on your own is quite hard. But other people can also be your worst enemy because the reality is they are most likely making mistakes about how fast to go, and you're copying them. Um, and I think uh, you know the strategy of simply ignoring everybody else especially people you know is so important. And I say especially people you know, because I think what happens a lot of the time, especially in a small race, when you maybe have a few club mates or something, or somebody from the same gym, and you know, well, I'm better than him or her. And that person goes off really, really quick. And you think, why is that person ahead of me? That person shouldn't be ahead of me. I'm better than them. And you run really, really fast trying to catch up with them because you think, well, I should be up there because I'm better than that person. But the reality is they've probably gone off way too fast. So you, unless it's, like I mentioned, the 20-kilometer uh, race walker, she she was able to ignore all that and come to really strongly at the end. So um, 
getting real meaningful feedback, like a split time, like I mentioned, the stopwatch over a short distance. So if you, if you know the first kilometer is uh, way faster than it should have been, you've got to slow down. Um, what a lot of people do is they do the first few kilometers, let's say the first five kilometers of a, a marathon in a really fast time. And instead of thinking, I've gone too fast, they think, oh, I've done a really good time. I'm going to smash my PB. You know, the, 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 you're using the feedback uh, incorrectly. So, um, yeah, I think you, you just got to, you, you really have to train yourself to ignore the environment. It's really hard to do. The easiest thing to do is do what everybody else is doing. But if you can ignore that and just say, I've got to just restrain myself, I've got to restrain myself so that, because I know what's coming. Um, because if you don't, you're just going to just gonna do what everybody else does, which is go too fast, slow down, and then we're all crawling towards the end. So, um, yeah, the, the, the brain is not a good guide sometimes. Perception is a bad guide. Mm. I'll put it that way. Perception of effort is a bad guide to how fast to run at the beginning of a race. Yeah, um, because I want to, like, <clears throat> change my thoughts on a lot of things as well. You, you casually just said at the start that like the central governor theory, there's a few people that have dropped that. When you say dropped, do you mean they've disregarded it or they're, they've found other theories that convince them otherwise? Um, what's, what was the idea behind that? Uh, it's just, it's just other theories. Um, you see, there's different, you know, the early pacing research, a lot of it was on cycling and rowing because, uh, you might know with cycling, they have all these parameters and everything, and they they, they study pacing a lot. Um, so all the a lot of early research was on those things, and the very very first studies on pacing in athletics were mainly things like um, the 800 meters. Look at the first half of the race. Look at the second half. Oh, they all slow down. Okay, so the best way to run a race is to run really fast in the first half and then slow down in the second half. But over time, and it was only really after 2008 that really useful data came out of athletics and um actually we, we wrote about this in a, in a in a literature review we did whereby we said that yeah there was a great uh, review done in 2008 on pacing but 2008 was when the first really good studies of uh, data came out on athletics so um we needed to re-evaluate i think what was happening in athletics you cannot look at cycling and rowing and swimming and say this is what you should do in running because it's totally different things um so we started off with being only been able to look at halfway splits in the marathon a lot of the early studies are just how you know what did they do at halfway what did they do at full you know, for full distance but that's in, completely inadequate uh, but it was all that was available. Now, more and more and more, we're getting more and more and more um, better splits so we can understand the pacing profiles much better about what's happening. And um, I focus mainly on, on championship racing, actually. And it's, you know, we've started to be able to model these things using current data. And we can see, you know, where is the anaerobic energy being used up? Why can't they do a sprint finish? It's not as simple as saying, oh, they were tired or oh, they just weren't good enough. You know, you've got to be able to analyze that. So we, 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 if you like, we've we've got more information now, now, more evidence to be able to say what's really happening in these races. Why is it happening like that? And how do we train? You know, how do we coach the athletes? Actually, uh, uh, there's an Olympic athlete from Australia competing and her, her coach emailed me about some of the ways I was um, talking about how championship races are run because it's not like you know, uh, world record attempts or personal best attempts or these Diamond League Grand Prix. It's it's totally different. So I think um, you know, there's lots of different theories as to how we pace. I'm not saying the central governing theory is, is wrong or anything like that. It's just that there are other ideas coming about about how people pace themselves. Um, and, you know, like I say, we've got more data now to be able to base our, our recommendations on. Yeah, cool. <clears throat> and so if I was to try and recap um this whole tactics and strategies for pacing strategies for a marathon we're talking about like during your training um getting enough experience or doing a couple of marathons to get some experience and doing some race pace a lot of race pace within your training to establish what your actual pace during the marathon should be then on race day we want to try and find even splits well the strategy is to try and be as even as possible if conditions allow, um, then we're factoring in things like hills. We're factoring in things like um, 
cooling down as much as we can and wind and shade and um, with those factors in, trying to make sure that our effort is equally distributed. Um, And then aside from that, um, trying to reduce the cognitive load um, by trying to make things as simple as possible, trying to make your strategy as simple as possible. And that might be taking um, cognitive load away from you and onto a pacer or onto a friend or another runner. Um, Is there any other factors or any other strategies or something that we haven't discussed yet that you think uh, we might need to know? Um, I think uh, in terms of, if you like, analyzing a race and then preparing for the next one, I think, you know, there's an interesting phenomenon in psychology that I studied called fundamental attribution error. Now, what this is, is it's, it's to do with whether you attribute success or failure to, or if you, right or wrong, if you like, to someone's disposition, so their personality or their circumstances, because that's the situational part. So the error occurs because what, pe- what people do is, uh, when pe- if, if I do, if me as a person, I do something wrong, um, what I will do to protect my ego, if you like, is that I will say that was because of the situation. It was, the, you know, I was late for work because the bus was late or because the alarm didn't go off or it's not because I'm a bad per- a lazy person. But then if I'm in my work and I'm teaching a student and the student arrives late, I'll make the error of not saying, oh, it's because the bus was late. It's because they were lazy and they couldn't get out of bed. Yeah. So this is what the fundamental attribution error is. We, we, we protect ourselves by saying it's not because of me, it's because of something external. Whereas with other people, we blame them and not the situations. So we, we reverse things. Now this happens in running. So a good example is we might run a, a personal best in, in a 10, 10K race, let's say. And we'll say, well, that's because I, I did such good training. I have, I'm so talented and I had great tactics. We won't, but if we don't do the PB, if we do a bad race, we don't say, well, it's because my training was bad or I'm not that good. Or We'll say, oh, it was the hills. It was the weather. It was something. It's always something else when, you know, we do badly. Is If you take the example now of these, uh, a lot of people running really fast times, um, especially on the track, we don't say, we make the same, we make the error, but in reverse, like I said, you we don't say, oh, it's because they train so hard or they're really talented. We say, well, it's the super shoes or they had a pacemaker, they had wave lights, they had something else. So when we did our survey of the 4,000 marathon runners, um, what was amazing was we, we asked them a qualitative question, just to like type in. We said, why do you think you slowed down in the second half? Because most of them did. I would say 90% blamed hills, weather, all these kind of things. Only 10% or less said, I ran out of fuel which is nearly always the main cause of people slowing down the marathon. So many people blamed the hills for some races, especially in America, that I looked at the course profile and found it wasn't that hilly in the, in the second half at all. Um, they just felt it was. Um, one person even blamed the crowd for being too noisy. That's why they didn't do a good time. Yeah. One, well, one, you have some obscure ones. One person had a, a false leg and lost 10 minutes changing their leg at halfway. You know, you get all these reasons why people don't run so well. But very few. the reality is nearly everybody slows in the second half of the marathon because they run out of fuel or they get tired or it gets hot, like you said. But, but nobody nobody wanted to say, oh, I wasn't trained that well or, or ran out of fuel or I didn't have enough... It was always blaming something else. And I think what happens is that if you do that too often, and it could be true that it was a hot day or it was a hilly course, but if you blame it too often, then you never go, you know, maybe my training wasn't good enough or maybe I I got my tactics wrong. Maybe I should have run slower at the beginning. So I think if you, if you it's not, a, this fundamental attribution error thing is a normal thing in human existence. It's not exclusive to runners it's everybody makes this mistake because it helps like i say protect us from feeling bad about ourselves but if you can be objective about how you ran and instead of saying okay it was a bit hotter you can say okay you know what i did start the race too quickly and i should learn from that so if we can be objective we can learn from our mistakes and and our successes and then run better the next time so we can learn we said talked about experience experience is only good if you if you learn from it um if you always blame the outside factors why you didn't do well they're always external factors are always going to be there. It's always going to be slightly hillier, or slightly hotter, or whatever. So you won't improve. So you've got to really, uh, like I say, um, just be aware that you will sometimes attribute things wrongly, 
and you've just got to be a bit objective in your running at least and say okay i'm going to improve for the next time and this is what i'm going to do to try to improve and that way you will improve yeah. eventually being a running physio as well i can extend that out to people who get injured and will blame other things they'll blame <laughs> their shoes they'll they'll blame something else rather than a training error that might have happened um yeah and well, yeah 75 percent of injuries are from training errors not from not from slipping or you know it's it's making a simple mistake of too much exercise or too much too soon mm. as you'll know so yeah it's exactly the yeah. same thing I, I, i'm a big fan of that self-reflection and i i guess as a um recommendation just trying to detach from that ego driven um trying to protect yourself mm. because if you are honing in and just like very narrow focus trying to protect your ego like you said you're not going to learn from it and we want to learn from all our experiences same with our injuries we want to learn from what brought us this injury in the first place and so we can do something different next time do something safer next time do something smarter do something better tactical next time and so um that's a, a really nice strategy and like i said like looking at runners they have maybe they've done like several marathons before hopefully they're all learning from each each marathon and um, we've all got a whole bunch of experiences in the past to, to learn from which is a wasted potential if you're not if you're so narrow focused and you're not using all that experience um to build up your wisdom then you know you're not going to see any improvement yeah exactly exactly i think it's a big it's a big thing but it's it's hard but i think the best runners do it or they or they'll get the coach to do it for yeah them. yeah brian um this was a lot of fun. Uh, I really wrapped it like the topic itself. I, I find it really fascinating. And I know a lot of people that <clears throat> there's a couple of situations where a runner would want, they want to overcome their injury. They want to decrease their risk of injuries. But the other one is they want to increase their running performance. And usually that comes in mm. a race. They want to improve their race times. Um, and I would, I would guess that most of that's around a half marathon or a marathon, those sort of distances. And so, um, a lot of people are going to really benefit from this. Um, it's very practical information, um, really easy information to implement and it can have a lot of positive impacts moving forward. Something so simple that can, um, really be a benefit. So I'll really thank you for coming on. Thank you for all the research you've done and, um, thanks for sharing us your knowledge today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brody. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.